come this evening in our study of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith to a consideration of chapter 27, the subject of the communion of saints. To introduce the subject, I want you to turn, please, in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We will read several verses of Scripture that will illustrate uh, the communion of the saints and our union with Jesus Christ. Beginning with verse 12, reading through to the end of the chapter. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And if the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts, that is, our more beautiful parts, have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church... First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way, which of course is taken up in chapter 13, which is the way of love or charity. For several weeks now we have been engaged in the study of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith on practical matters as pertains to the family and marriage, to the church and our relationship therein. Having studied the doctrine of the church in our last 
chapter, it is only natural that we turn now to a subject considering the communion of the saints. From the Confession of Faith, we only have two paragraphs that set forth this subject. However, the subject is covered rather detailed in those few words. So let us note first of all from section 1 and the first part that all believers have a vital union with Christ. All believers have a vital union with Christ. We read, All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his Spirit and faith, although they are not made there by one person with him, have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. We have already noted in an earlier study the usage of the word saint and how this word is applicable, first of all, to all professing Christians who are spoken of in Scripture in the sense of being outward saints. As we noted last time in studying the church, that when Paul addressed the church at Corinth in his first Corinthian letter in chapter 1, a church that was known for its schisms and division and immorality, he still said in verse 2, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be saints. So there are outward saints by a profession of faith. Then there are those who are the real inward saints of God through the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. The word saint means that we have been set apart, first of all, in the eternal counsel of God before the foundation of the world in divine election, when God chose us as his own peculiar people. And then further, by the atoning work of God the Holy Spirit, wherein we were purchased out of the slave market of sin through his redemption. And then experientially, by the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit, wherein we were brought to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and so were actually set apart unto the Lord Jesus as those uh, that bear his image. Now, all saints are not saintly, which means that all of us do not live up to the reputation of our title. But however, any person who has faith in Jesus Christ is a saint of God, and it does not require death and some great deed performed in the church, and then a declaration of the church for one to fit into this category. You will note from this statement of the confession that our union with Jesus Christ is by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and faith. We read, All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his Spirit and faith. Now this has reference to a work wherein we are both passive and active. The work of the Spirit is that of regeneration. In this work we contribute nothing. 
we are totally and completely passive in that when the Spirit of God comes to us in a state of nature, we are dead in trespasses and in sins. And as being spiritually dead, there is no motion nor movement that we can make toward God that is pleasing to Him. So the first requirement is spiritual life, and this the Holy Spirit imparts in the act of regeneration. But we are also active in that where there is the work of the Spirit in regeneration, there is simultaneously believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the gift of God, but God does not believe on our behalf. We do the believing. The sure evidence of regeneration that brings us into union with Christ is the fact that we do believe. Now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this is brought out where we read in verses 12 and 13, But as many as received him, there is the believing, there is the active part, to them gave he authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, here is the Spirit's work wherein we are passive, whereby we are enabled to believe, which were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, which were born of God, the Holy Spirit. The same twofold truth is brought out in the book of James, chapter 1, where we read in verse 18, Of his own will begat he us, or born he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he born us, begat us, and that by the word of truth, and the word of truth brings forth a response in faith. For when that word of truth comes to us in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we respond by believing. And so our union with Christ, is not by nature, but rather by the work of the Spirit of God, whereby we believe on Christ as Savior. We may note that this union that the believer has with Christ, where it is stated we are united to Jesus Christ our head as members of a body, uh, is described in various ways. First of all, there is a federal or representative union. I want you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 5, so we may read two familiar but very important verses of Scripture. Romans, chapter 5, first of all, in uh, verse 15, but not as the offense, so also as the free gift. For if through the offense of one, having reference to Adam, Many be dead, much more the grace of God, and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Then verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, by Adam's disobedience, many, and as I have pointed out many times, the definite article is there, the many were made or legally constituted sinners, so by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, shall the many 
be made or constituted righteous. Now, we may see from these scriptures there are two covenants, and there are two covenant heads. First of all, there is a covenant of works, which we have already examined in our study of the confession, which covenant of works was made with Adam by God after Adam's creation, wherein Adam stood as our representative and federal head. As a consequence of this, Adam acted on our behalf so that when he sinned, we became sinners in him. We were constituted guilty, and we received a polluted nature. Therefore, by nature, we are in a broken covenant of works, born under the wrath of God and the curse of the law. So all of Adam's posterity were constituted sinners by his disobedience, Adam said. Why? Because we were in union with Adam. Adam stood as our representative. But also there is a second covenant, which is the everlasting covenant, the covenant of grace or redemption. And Jesus Christ stands as the head or federal representative of that covenant. Whereas we were made sinners by the disobedience of Adam, it is by the positive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilling the stipulations of the covenant of grace which are spelled out in the gospel, in obeying the law in our stead, taking to himself our nature, going to the cross of Calvary, dying in our room, that we are constituted righteous or that we are saved. So as we in union with Adam became sinners, so by the covenant of grace we are in a federal union with Jesus Christ, which means that Jesus Christ was appointed by God to stand in the room instead of the elect, wherein the elect, in the purpose of God, in the grace of God, in the economy of redemption, are seen in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is more than just a federal union with Jesus Christ. There is in our experience, because this federal union is ours in the purpose and decree of God even prior to the time of our conversion. But experientially, as a result of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and our believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior, there is a vital union with Jesus Christ. Now, what is meant by a vital union is explained in the Scripture uh, by several illustrations. For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, it is described for us by the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. In verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, that's union, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. 
Then we find further uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter, thir- uh, chapter 12, the passage that we read extensively, uh, that our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ is compared to that of a body with its various members of which Christ is the head. So that no matter how insignificant a member of the body may appear to be, it has its vital relationship to the totality of the body. And if we had our choice, even with a physical body, we would not part with any member that is a part of the constitution of that body's makeup. So it is with our relationship to Christ. He is the head. And every single believer, as a branch, must make up the vine to bear fruit. Every single believer is a member of that body of Jesus Christ, and so functions in his calling and capacity. Then in Ephesians chapter 5, this vital union is further illustrated by the relationship, that mysterious, mystical relationship between husband and wife. For there we read in verse uh, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And then we read in verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So here we have the vine and the branches, the head and the body, or the body with its members and the husband and the wife. This is a vital union. But what is it that we find common in this relationship? We find throughout the same life, the same L-I-F-E, whatever life is in the vine also reaches out to the branches. Whatever life is in my body reaches out to all of the members of that body. And when a husband and wife are joined together, this becomes a mystical union where they are reckoned to be one flesh, and so complete that which is lacking as long as they are not in that union. So this is what is meant by vital union, that we are brought into union with Jesus Christ to the extent that his life is our life, that we live by him. And he expresses himself in and through us. The confession also says that we have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Now, this has reference to a spiritual union. It's a spiritual union, vital because the life comes from Christ, spiritual because it is produced by the Spirit who indwells us and maintains the union, and then we have fellowship with Christ in His graces. This, of course, does not mean that we have a physical fellowship with Christ in these graces because we did not physically suffer in His sufferings. We did not physically die in His death. We did not physically rise from the dead in His resurrection. But we have a spiritual communion, a spiritual relationship, so that the Bible speaks of us 
as having died with Christ, having been buried with Christ, having been raised with Christ, and we know that actually we shall be raised up to share in his glory. But even now we have a fellowship with him in all of his graces, even in his suffering, bearing his reproach and shame, though not for the atonement of sins. In the second place, we are taught not only that all believers have a vital union with Christ, but that all believers have a communion with other believers and in each other's gifts. Now, it is because of our union with Christ that we have communion with one another and share in one another's gifts. And this latter part is what is often overlooked. That is, whatever gift God bestows upon any individual member of his body is a gift that is participated in and shared by the whole. God does not bestow any gift upon any person, that that gift lie dormant and that that gift be selfishly used. Now, to some degree, and what degree you'll have to judge for yourself, and I'm sure that if we had a thermometer it would go up and down according to personal preference, but to some degree... I am aware of the fact that God, in calling me to the ministry, has given me the gift of ministry. But what good is that gift unless you share in it, unless you participate in it, unless it becomes also your gift? For example, if I take food in my body, am I going to exclude my little finger because it might not be useful at the present time? However, when you take up certain... Uh, arts, you'll find how extremely important the little finger can become. For example, in typing, and if you ever take up the classical guitar, uh, you, in some of the finger exercises, are eventually convinced that the only finger that you have on your left hand that is of any value is the little finger, because you just use it over and over and over to the point of exhaustion. But the little finger is valuable. And uh, so we want it to share in the nourishment that is given even to our eyes and our ears that we consider to be important. Now, Brother Davidson, God has given him a gift. He has an ability to teach, but he has a gift of singing. He doesn't use it much, but he has it. One of these days, God's going to take it away from him and give it to me. That is, unless he starts using it. Uh, so after that, you'll start using it, won't you? <laughs> but that is a gift. Because everybody doesn't have that gift. Why, you ought to hear some of the people try to sing. Now, I'm not discouraging you. You go ahead and sing because, thank God, he never said make a joyful melody. He said make a joyful noise. And so it's good that we have a noise. But look at what the confession says, taking up where we left off in our reading in section 1. And being united to one another in love. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged. I like that word. We don't use it much anymore. You know, when I was growing up as a boy, you'd do a favor for somebody, and if they really appreciated that favor, they didn't say thank you. They'd say, much oblige. And uh, the word got mixed up a little bit, and, 
And uh, uh, for a long time, I really didn't know when I was a boy what words they really were using, but they were saying, I am much obliged to you. I like that word. I like the sound of it even better than thank you. Because it carries with it not merely an appreciation, but also a reciprocal duty or response of responsibility. See, they are obliged, obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way as to conduct to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, in verse 22, for example, Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. There's not a single member of this body that does not have some gift that God has bestowed upon him, and that gift is absolutely necessary for the maturity and completion of this body as the members of this physical body are necessary to the wholeness of my person. So no person is unimportant, and no gift is to be ignored. You say you don't have a gift, but if you were removed, as some remove themselves, uh, from the assembly, uh, then we see what gift they had and wherein uh, the assembly, the body, is lacking. But note in the third place that not only do we have union with Christ that results in communion with one another, whereby we share with one another in a mutual interest, but this communion entails certain mutual duties and obligations among believers. Now, in section 1, the latter part as to conduct to their mutual good both in the inward and outward man, and then in section 2 of the long section, we read, saints by profession. That is, even those who are merely saints uh, by outward profession of the name of Christ who have joined themselves uh, to the uh, outward body. Uh, saints by profession are bound by the very fact of their profession by the very fact that they name the name of Jesus Christ, are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion. Now watch this next statement. In the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in necessity, or in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion according to the rule of the gospel, though especially to be exercised by them in the relations wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, yet as God offereth opportunity is to be extended to all the household of faith even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion one with another as saints doth not take away or infringe the title or property which each man hath in his goods and possessions. Now, we're going to see that our early confessors were by no means persuaded 
by thoughts of socialism and communism. But I want you to note that statement in the opening part of the second paragraph, that we are duty-bound to maintain holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, in the worship of God. In other words, when you are united with Christ, you are united to other believers. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that even the most insignificant member of the body, the physical body, is given its proper attention and adornment so that there won't be a schism in the body. That is, a division, anything lacking. Now, applied spiritually, if we are united to one another through our union with Jesus Christ, we cannot fulfill our calling and our function, nor the function we cannot share in, that we cannot participate in. There are also members of the body missing that we cannot nourish through the ministry of the Word, you see. And so they are failing the body as well as failing themselves when they are not from a sense of being duty-bound, faithful to the assembly of God. Now, this is not the only reason for the public assembly. There are other duties that press upon us, but this is one reason, that we are members of the same body, united to one another through union with Christ. Now, let's look at a couple of scriptures that ought to impress this upon our minds. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, we are once again being warned against apostasy to the extent, as in Hebrews chapter 6, of falling away and committing the unpardonable sin. As has been explained time and again, only a religious professor, a religious person, not a saved person, but a religious person, can commit the unpardonable sin. So we are again warned in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse uh, 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. So there is the admonition that we are to hold on fast to the profession that we are made. Now, what's involved in that? Look at the next statement and underline it. And let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. Now, there's your communion. We hold fast to our profession, and then we consider one another in this mutual communion and fellowship where we share our gifts and participate in the gifts of others. Now look at what he goes on to say. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And how can we do this? How can we hold fast our profession, proving that we are genuinely saved, and consider one another to the extent of sharing with them and then provoking to love and good works. Verse 25, not 
forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That is, coming out to the public worship and participating in the exercises of the ordinances of the church, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Now look at the warning in verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And the willful sin is a deliberate, willful leaving the assembly of God, forsaking the assembly, where there is no longer any union with the people of God, which will reveal that we didn't have union with Christ. And if this is done willfully and we go away from the gospel after having tasted of the heavenly gift, uh, there will be no room for repentance. Now turn to chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, uh, reading this in keeping with what we have just read. And we see again uh, this mutual fellowship to be maintained in considering one another uh, in the public worship. In verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3, another warning, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now look at the next statement, In departing from the living God. Chapter 10, In departing from the assembly and from fellowship with God's people. Here, departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And the only way that we can exhort one another is by meeting with one another in the public worship, sharing our gifts, provoking one another to love and to good works. And then the confession states that we are duty-bound as members one of another in union with Christ and communion with one another to relieve each other in outward things as far as our abilities go and as far as the necessities of others are concerned. Now, as a church body, I believe that this body of believers can be commended to that extent in that there has always been a spirit of unselfishness to share in the Lord's gifts to those that might be in need. But this is also to be carried on on an individual basis, where we actually communicate with one another individually in meeting one another's necessities. Now, in closing, taking two statements out of each of the paragraphs, we may note that union with Christ and this mutual communion with one another does not mean, number one, that we become divine or equal with Christ. And on the other hand, it does not destroy the right of private property. Now look at section 1. We read in section 1, All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his Spirit and faith, although they are not made there by one person with him. So union with Christ does not mean what the modern liberals in our churches conceive it to be, and what is found in the 
Eastern religions of mysticism, such as Zen Buddhism, and in pantheism and occultism, where communion with God is actually our being caught up and, and merging into the divine. That is, their concept of man is that he's just a little protrusion of the divine out into the world. That is, a, a little nipple that sticks out of the divine. And the way that we enter into the communion is by drawing that little nipple in where we really move into the divine and lose our own personality and individuality and self-consciousness. So you see, even way back in 1689, our Baptist forebears in drawing up this confession were aware of the dangerous philosophy that failed to make a distinction between the person of God and his creation and creatures. We have union with Christ, but we don't become divine and equal with him. We don't get lost in his person. We are still individuals. And then the last part of paragraph 2, that these duties that are imposed upon us do not take away or infringe the title of property which each man hath in his goods and possessions. In other words, our communion with one another. Our fellowship one with the other and love for one another does not destroy the right of private property. So you see, even way back in that day, uh, these men, wise by the Spirit, saw the danger of the spirit of socialism and communism. That is, of a mutual sharing of all things in communism. Though we meet the necessities of people, we still have a right to private property. You say, but the early church practiced communism. No, it was not a communism. If you'll turn to the book of Acts, uh, we'll look at the scripture that is so often abused to try to prove communism from the scriptures. In the book of Acts, and chapter 2, in verse 41 it says, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. In verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 44, all that believed were together, that is, in communion, and had all things in common. And then in verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, that was not communism, uh, but the church was suffering from persecution by both the Jewish ecclesiastical order and the Roman Empire, and Christians were very poor. And out of this oneness of communion, Christians shared their possessions, even to the point of pooling their possessions to meet a need. But they did not establish a communist regime. They were meeting needs. They were meeting an emergency. Also, you must note that they did this voluntarily without government authority. Now, communism is imposed from above down upon the people, where we are brought under the pretense of sharing in all things by government legislation. 
Now, if we were in dire circumstances in this church and we voluntarily wanted to share all that we have, that would be our business and not communism because there would be no government involvement. On the other hand, these persons did this voluntarily and without the commandment of God. God did not require this of them. He only required that they love one another. And out of love, they were willing to meet one another's needs. And in all of this, the disciples never lost sight of and never ceased to instruct the church of the right of private property, of private ownership. For in chapter 5, where we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife who were undoubtedly very wealthy, uh, went out and sold a piece of property and then lied by saying they'd given everything to the church, were struck dead on the spot at the church meeting. Now, they were not struck dead for not giving their possessions. They were struck dead for lying about it. For the apostle Peter very plainly says to them in verses 3 and 4, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now, look at the next verse. Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? In other words, as long as it was not sold, was it not your own land? Could you not have done with it as you please? Sell it and keep all the money? Or not sell it at all? But you've sinned in that you have declared to the church by oath that you have sold that possession of land to give all of the income from it to the church to relieve the needy, and you've kept back part of it for yourself, and you've lied to God. So he says, while it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in thine own power? In other words, after you sold it, could you not have done with the money as you pleased? You could have kept a part of it or all of it. But instead of that, you made a pledge that you'd give it all. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And then, of course, even the practice of this common sharing passed away with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem because it was never commanded by God and it did not work out too well in actual practice even under the authority of the apostles. For you, you will remember that the office of the deacon had to be actually organized and introduced into the church because some of the people were grumbling and complaining and murmuring uh, that certain widows in the church were getting more than the widows that belonged to their group. And so the apostles couldn't tend to the business and had to appoint deacons to take care of that business so they could give themselves to the preaching of the Word, to study, and to praying. Uh, so it didn't uh, even work out uh, without some uh, difficulty and misunderstanding even under the leadership of the apostles. So the Bible does not teach communism. But it does teach that we, in fellowship and communion with one another, love one another to the extent of sharing one with the other according to our abilities and according to the needs of those that are a part of the household of faith.